Hello, everyone. Welcome to the World of NP podcast, an informative platform for healthcare consumers and providers, where your voices matter. My name is Dr. Christine Taharan. Our special guest today is Attorney Oliver Thomas. Attorney Thomas will discuss the top 10 reasons the healthcare insurance companies use to deny claims and strategies to prevent denials. He will also explain the appeal process and the techniques used to enhance reimbursement. Denial for reimbursement for medical services rendered continue to be challenging for providers and hospitals. An analysis by Change Healthcare in 2017 indicated that out of approximately $3 trillion in medical claims submitted by hospitals last year, almost 9% of charges were initially denied. This means that as much as $4.9 million per hospitals was put at financial risk due to denials. The report further stated that even though 63% of those claims were recoverable, that effort came with a price tag of approximately $118 per claim. If the claims required legal assistance by a reputable law firm, it could cost up to 20 to 30% of the total amount recovered. The Change Healthcare found that registration eligibility was the leading cause of denial at 24%, followed by missing or invalid claim data at 15%. With hospitals continue to rely on reimbursement to perform, Providers and staffs need to understand the strategies to maximize reimbursements. Welcome, Attorney Thomas. Please highlight your education and law background. Thanks so much. Good evening, Christine. Thank you for having me here. I actually have been practicing since 2004. I've always practiced in the field of healthcare law, for the most part. I'm a litigation attorney, and I've represented healthcare providers, mostly hospital systems, physician groups, in mostly healthcare reimbursement disputes. So between the providers and the health plans or health insurance companies. I've worked as in-house counsel for at least a couple of hospital groups. I've also represented some specialty pharmacies before. And I've also worked outside counsel to represent these hospitals in their litigation, which be in court or in arbitration matters against the biggest insurance companies in the country or even in California. So that's my background. And I, I do specialize mostly in reimbursement matters involving hospital claims not getting paid in time or being denied or being underpaid by these health plans or insurance companies for various reasons that we will talk about in your podcast today. Great. Thank you very much for sharing your amazing experience with us. I will start off with our first question, and that is, what is the difference between rejected claims and denial claims? Rejected claims are basically claims that, so I I think as a background, let me explain how it works. So When a patient goes to the hospital and gets treatment, then, for example, you go to a hospital and you receive your treatment, you don't necessarily just go before you leave, you have to write them a check or something for for the services they provided. What usually happens is that you give them your insurance card. And basically, you're giving them the information about your insurance, whether it is an HMO or a PPO or whatever health plan you might have. And then what the hospital is going to do next is that they will send the bill 
not to you, but they'll send it to your insurance company or your health plan. That's why for the most part, patients do not see the actual bill, hospital bills from their hospital or doctors. Now, what happens then is that the health plan or the insurance companies will go ahead and process those bills or what we call hospital claims, and then issue payments directly to the hospital. Now, sometimes there are instances when the hospital submits bills, and for some reason, they do not submit all the information that is needed for the health plan or the insurance company to process the, the, the claim or the bill. Another one example is there are instances where a health plan or an insurance company actually require that the claims or the hospital bills be accompanied by the medical records of the patient. And of course, there will be instances when the hospital will send bills without the medical records. And those bills, for the most part, will be then rejected. Now, that does not mean that insurance or the health plan is not going to pay those claims. What they're basically telling the hospitals or the providers is that look, you were missing some information here. We cannot process your claim or the bill as they are right now. So we request that you please resubmit the bill with the missing information or please submit the medical records that should have accompanied these bills and then we'll go ahead and process those. So that is what a rejected bill is. A denied claim or a denied bill is something that the health plan or the insurance company actually accepted. And they said, okay, fine. We have all the information that we need in order to process this bill. However, based on our determination, for some reason, we are not going to pay this bill because of, and that's what we're going to talk about here today. For, for example, they're saying that one, one reason is that they can say that we did not authorize these services. So Yes, we're not rejecting the bill. We, you billed us correctly. You gave us all the information, but we're not going to pay the claim because we never authorized the medical services that you're billing for in the first place. So that's just one example. So that's the difference between a rejected bill or claim and a denied claim. Thank you. There are 10 top reasons insurance companies use to deny hospital claims for reimbursements. We will discuss them in order. Attorney Thomas, the first reason the insurance company used to deny claim is the patient eligibility is the number one reason for reimbursement denial. Please explain how the insurance company uses these reasons to prevent reimbursement and how can the hospital avoid or overcome this denial? When a health plan or an insurer denies a claim on the basis that the patient is not eligible, what they're basically are saying is that the patient is not covered by the policy or the, or by the health plan and the, or the insurance. Now, what that means is that maybe the patient did not renew the insurance. They he did not pay the premium, and so they so the insurance has canceled coverage or maybe it has expired. But for whatever reason, he's not eligible which means this patient is not covered any longer at the time that the medical services for which the hospitals are billing were rendered. And the, the reason this happens sometimes is that some, sometimes patients just keep their insurance cards or like their policy cards with them, even though they've already been expired. And sometimes, just to give you an, an example or a scenario, 
I'm sure you've experienced this before working for companies. Once in a while, uh, a company would change the insurance uh, or health plan for their employees. So let's just say, for example, they used to have Cigna, and then the next year they decided to go with United Healthcare or maybe Kaiser or something. And of course, this is all based on what is more economical or cost-effective for the company. So that's why they might decide to switch from one health plan to another. I can imagine some patients probably would hold on to their old insurance card. And, and so when they go to the doctor and they end up handing over the card that actually is no longer in effect, the hospital goes ahead and bill that in health plan and they find out that this patient is no longer insured with them because as I said, they've already changed coverage. Or sometimes it's with the same health plan, but it's just a different policy. What happens is that the hospital sends their bill to the health plan or insurance company. And then when hospitals bill health plans and insurance companies, they have to bill it under a specific policy number. So if they bill it with the policy number that is no longer effective, then it would come back as when the health plan tries to process the claim, it would come back as, as if there's no coverage or this patient was not eligible. When in fact, this patient is covered only but under a different policy number. So that's basically what it means. If the patient has no coverage under a health plan, there's really not much else the hospital can do. If the patient really is not covered, what are you going to do? Other than to maybe reach out to the patient and make sure, do you have any other coverage under a different health plan, or maybe you have a second insurance company that you can provide to us so we can go ahead and build it. It's just uh, basically a matter of communicating with the patient to make sure that he or she does not have any other insurance or health plan that he or she is covered under. Another thing is that, and this is usually done by maybe case managers or maybe sometimes social workers in the hospital is that in instances or cases where the patient turned out to be to have no coverage under his or her insurance for whatever reason, the hospital oftentimes would take the initiative to help the patient to determine whether or not he or she may be eligible for, for Medi-Cal or Medicaid or, or sometimes Medicare. And that in order to help the patient to get some coverage and also that would help the hospital to be able to reimburse for the services rendered. Of course, one way to ensure that this doesn't happen very often is that to ensure that at the point of admission, when a patient first comes to the hospital, that when they ask for the insurance information, they can go ahead and call right away and check and verify what before we provide services to this patient, we need to verify whether or not he or she has coverage under this policy. Of course, that is assuming that the patient came into the hospital, not through the emergency department, because if there's an emergency medical condition at the time that the patient came into the hospital, then under the law, you may not ask the patient for their insurance information. You may not even ask them how they're going to pay for that. You need to provide a screening to determine the level of urgency or, or whether or not that patient really has an emergency medical condition at that time. So what I'm talking about right now about verifying the patient's coverage under his or her insurance or health plan 
only applies if the patient came in there not under emergency medical need or, or conditions. Sometimes what happens is that even when the hospitals call the health plan or the insurance company to verify coverage for this patient, what happens very often is that the insurance or the health plan would verify that there is coverage. So what will happen, and, and then they will go ahead and authorize the medical services to be provided to this patient. And then later on, when the hospital or the provider bills the health plan or the insurance, then they will deny the claim on the basis that, oh, actually, in retrospect, this patient has no coverage and was not eligible. It turned out that upon further review, his policy had expired before the medical services were rendered. Now, as the provider or the hospital, you would think, okay, so you're saying that this patient is not longer covered under his or her policy, but when, I, when we called to verify their coverage, you verified that there was coverage. And so we went ahead in reliance on that verification to provide the medically necessary services to this patient. So what happens now? Under the Health and Safety Code, and actually also even under the California Insurance Code, once a health plan or insurance company authorizes the provision of medically necessary services to a patient, once they've authorized that, and then the provider and or the hospital went ahead and provided those same services to that patient, the health plan or the insurance thereafter can no longer modify or deny coverage for that patient, even if they can prove that there really was no coverage for that patient at the time. Under the law, they will be required to still go ahead and pay for the services rendered by the provider or, or the doctor. And the reason for that is that it, it places the burden upon the health plan or the insurance company to ensure that when they verify coverage upon the request of a hospital or a provider or a doctor, they ensure that the information they're relying on is current or accurate. So now they can say our system wasn't updated yet. So when you called us, it showed that there's coverage. But then later on, when we reviewed it, it turned out that his coverage expired the month before. So we're going to go ahead and deny your claim. No, that's not going to, that's not allowed under the law here in California. Once as an insurer or a health one, once you've authorized services, even though later on you can prove that there really was no coverage because of the fact that you went ahead and, and verified coverage and authorized the services to be provided. Now you are required to go ahead and reimburse the provider or the physician or the hospital for the services that they rendered. And that is something I think that a lot of providers and hospitals may not be aware of. They can just go go ahead and chalk that up as that's too bad. We're just going to have to eat it up. But no, like, no, I mean, if they authorize the services, they have to pay for it, whether or not there actually really was cover coverage. Because the term that the they use within the industry for that type of denial is post-claim underwriting. So what does that mean? So basically what the insurer or the help is doing is that they're trying to underwrite coverage for the patient at, only after the claim has already been submitted by the hospital for the services that they provided. 
In other words, the insurance or the helpline wouldn't have made any effort to determine whether or not this patient really had coverage, but for the fact that they received the bill from the hospital. And that's the reason oftentimes that their systems are not updated because they just didn't update it until they received the bill from the hospital and they went ahead and were like, oh, gee whiz, look, this policy already expired, so we don't have to pay. Well, if you authorize it, as I said, once you've authorized services, then you have to pay. Insufficient information is the second leading cause of denial, according to the analysis by Change Healthcare done in 2017. Attorney Thomas, what is your opinion on that? Well, sufficient information, we touched on that earlier when we were talking about rejected claims. As I said earlier, for example, the hospital had the incorrect name or spelling of the name. It could just be very as simple as that. It could be an incorrect name of the patient, incorrect date of birth. Sometimes medical records are required to be submitted with the bill. That is cause for the health plan or the insurance company to reject the claim or the bill. And for the most part, this type of denial, although, as you said, this is quite prevalent, this type of denial should be rather relatively easy to fix. So if you're missing some information, then all the hospital needs to do is basically go back to its records and, and, and check what the missing records were or missing information was and provide the missing information. If they're requiring the medical records, then go ahead, provide the medical records. The insurer, the health one can go ahead and process the claim. Now, very briefly, just wanted to touch a little bit about the scenario where the insurer or the health plan is requesting medical records and using that as a reason for not being able to process the, the claim or the bill, therefore for rejecting the, the bill or the claim. In my experience, I've seen instances where the hospital actually did provide the medical records to the insurer or the health plan. But for whatever reason, the health plan or the insurer keeps claiming that they never received the medical records. And, and, and I believe this happens because oftentimes, and for the most part, hospital bills or claims are submitted electronically. I think the most common systems used by hospitals don't necessarily allow the medical records to be submitted together with the bill when they are submitted electronically. So the medical records will have to be submitted separately. And for some reason, what happens for the most part is that when the insurance company receives the bill, they don't necessarily receive the medical records that were sent with it since they were sent separately. Or maybe they sent it, but probably was directed to another department or another adjuster, or for whatever reason, they couldn't find it. That's why it's not uncommon for me to see something whenever I'm litigating a case involving this type of issue where the hospital provided or sent over the medical records a number of times. And then the health plan still would keep saying that we never received the medical records. Therefore, we cannot go ahead and process this. What the hospitals can do and what they definitely should do in this type of instances is that they should document whenever they sent the medical records and they should document the name of the employee or agent of the insurer, the health plan who received it, who they sent, to whom they sent it to. And then if possible, maybe request a confirmation number or a receipt number 
and document the time and the date when you sent that those medical records. Because if for some reason they said that, well, the time for you to submit the claim has passed and you did not submit your claim in a timely manner, so we're, therefore we're rejecting it because we never received the medical records until five months later, that happens. Sometimes they would say that we never received the medical records until after the time for you to submit the bill had already passed, so we're denying this as untimely. That's where those documented instances when you actually, when the hospital sent over the medical bills, that's when you will need that information to show that, okay, even though now you're claiming that you never received the medical records until this date, we have in our records indicated that on this month, this date, we actually sent the medical records and received by this employee by this name. So now, even though they're claiming that they never received medical records until later time, that you can prove that you actually sent them or tried to send the medical records a number of times before that. It's all about documentation. It's all about keeping a record of the number of times you've actually attempted to comply with the right way of submitting your bill. So once you can prove that, look, we've tried five times to send the medical records. These are the, this is the proof. Later on, if that claim has to go to litigation, that would be uh, really key information in proving that the hospital actually made a good faith attempt to submit the bill in a timely manner and uh, with the complete information. Attorney Thomas, the third reason why a claim is denied is duplicate billing. Could you explain how insurance company could inaccurately deny requests based on duplicate billing? For example, if the patient had surgery, the surgery room's usage is one charge and the surgical supplies charge is another. But sometimes the insurance companies inaccurately denied one of these charges as duplicate billing. Yeah, this is another common denial that health plans or insurance companies actually use. Another term that we usually see when re- with regards to this type of denial is the bundling or unbundling of medical services or supplies. For the most part, this applies just based on your examples too. This involves some medical supplies. For example, when a hospital takes in a patient and the patient stays at the ICU for a number of days, the ICU by definition comes with certain types of services and supplies and equipment. And that's why it's called the ICU. It basically, it's a higher level of care compared to your usual or, or, or normal inpatient setting. But when the hospital bills for the services re- rendered during those days that this patient spent his time at the ICU, the charges for the ICU already incorporates certain types of supplies or services that are inherent in the ICU that actually defines why it's called ICU. So for example, if certain types of medications that were given as part of you being in the ICU, or let's say the IV, for example, that should already come with the, with the ICU or with the room. So when you bill for the ICU or you bill for the room, you shouldn't be billing separately for the IV because that should already come with the, with the charges for the room itself. Now, Oftentimes, these denials are actually legitimate. They're correct because for whatever reason, sometimes hospital bills separately for these supplies when, in fact, they're already incorporated with the room charges. 
However, there are also times when they are not. It may appear that they should have been part of the room. For example, maybe the patient requires some additional types of services or supplies that are not necessarily included in the room. So you have to bill for those separately. Now, when the health plan or the insurance company receives the bill and then reviews it and processes it, and they see, oh, this normally is part of the room. So why are they billing separately for you? We're going to go ahead and deny those and just pay for the room. When in fact, upon closer review, they should have found out or they should have realized that actually, no, if you looked at the medical records, these are additional services that normally are not provided within the ICU or whatever level of care or room that patient was. This type of cases, in order for hospitals to dispute this type of denial, you actually will need somebody who, like a a doctor or a nurse practitioner who understands what the different services and supplies are come along with the room or with a given hospital setting. They can actually go ahead and determine whether or not, yeah, this should have been billed together. In other words, they should have been bundled. The health plan or the insurer was correct in denying this. Or sometimes, look, these are additional services or supplies that normally do not come with the room. So we have to bill for those separately. They are wrong in denying these charges. That's what they call unbundling. So you're trying to unbundle those services separately from the room. This one is, as I said, requires a closer examination of the actual services provided to the patient. And this would be a case-by-case basis. Would recommend that for providers or hospitals that see a lot of these type of claims that they definitely should designate someone, either one of their physicians or one of their nurses to go ahead and review these claims and submission and determine, okay, yeah, our billing was incorrect. We should have, we shouldn't have unbundled and we should have not billed for those supplies. Or maybe this is something that we definitely have to contest or dispute because these supplies and services are additional and they did not necessarily come with the room. But for the most part, especially for hospitals that have well-trained billers, they know what they're doing. They don't necessarily double bill or have a duplicate billing. What's going on really is that they're providing additional services that do not necessarily come with a specific other service. What appears to be duplicate actually is not duplicate. Again, as I said, in order to dispute that, you need somebody within the clinical background to look more closely into the claim and review the medical records and then maybe submit an appeal letter to the health plan or the insurance company explaining specifically why these services were billed separately and and why they are not duplicate. For example, Attorney Thomas, if the patient were the antibiotics, the typical one may be included into Mm -hmm. the supply. However, blood transfusion will not be. But that's Mm -hmm. an obvious example. One example that may not be obvious is that maybe the patient needs an advanced medical treatment that's not included, maybe more advanced antibiotics. Yeah. Just because there might be an unexpected turn of event. That's an excellent point that you mentioned earlier, that clinicians should be a part of the claim process to determine what was part of the bundle and what was separate and distinct. Yeah, exactly. That's a good example. Yes. Attorney Thomas, the fourth reason is untimely filing late claim. And I believed you reviewed that. Yeah, we did touch on that earlier a little bit. Health plans and insurance companies would deny a claim 
if they were not submitted within a specific time frame. Now, if a hospital or a provider is contracted with the health plan or, or insurance, sometimes the contract would specify the length of time within which they must submit a bill. The hospital has to make sure that its system is updated. For example, if you have to submit a bill to a specific health plan, let's just say Blue Cross Blue Shield, so your system should be updated to ensure that it knows that for Blue Shield claims, it needs to be submitted within 180 days or something like that. So in order to avoid untimely filings, because once you miss uh, a deadline for submitting a claim, unless you have good cost for the delay, it would be really difficult to convince a judge or an arbitrator why the bill should still be processed. Now, Having said that, now you would think the hospital would know better or they would train their staff better to make sure that timely filing or late claims are avoided for the most part. They are. They, are, they have well-trained staff or billers and they do train. They, they do train them and make sure that they know what they're doing in order to submitting these claims or bills timely. But it still happens. And, and the reason it happens, let me explain, is under this specific scenario where the patient either has a new policy or more than one policy at the same time. One of them is secondary and the other one is primary. Let me just step back a little bit. Let's just say, for example, a patient comes into the hospital, gets treatment, and then gives that and said, I don't have my card with me right now, but I am, I remember I'm actually insured under, under Aetna. Hospital, they went ahead and searched, submitted a bill to Aetna for this patient. And then, yes, the, this patient was at some point insured or had coverage under Aetna. So they went ahead and submitted bill to Aetna. Then later on, they receive a denial letter from Aetna saying that this patient actually is no longer insured under us. And this is different from the scenario I was talking about where they had authorized it before the services were provided. This is something like they Aetna did not authorize it, but the patient said, I had Aetna. And so the hospital went ahead and, and sent their bill to Aetna. And then they find out that here, the patient's no longer insured by Aetna. They find out later on, because they contact the patient, they said, sir, ma'am, we actually billed Aetna and they said, you no longer have coverage with them. So do you have any other way of paying for the bill or do you want to pay cash, something like that? And then the patient said, oh, you know what, geez, I'm my mistake. I told you I had coverage with that. I forgot. We had changed our insurance with my work. So I actually no longer have Aetna. I have actually United Healthcare. So here you go. Hospital's like, okay, oh, fine. Thanks for giving me this information. Do I go ahead and build United Healthcare? And United Healthcare is a, this services were provided six months ago or almost a year ago. And you're billing us just right now. We're going to deny this as untimely because you should have submitted this within 90 days or something. But in reality is it wasn't really the hospital's fault because they tried to get the information from the patient. The patient gave them the incorrect information. And then by the time they found out who the primary and insurer health plan was, and that was in effect at the time that the services were provided. By the time they found out the time limit or the deadline to submit the claim had already passed. What I advise my clients usually in those instances is that as soon as they get the information about the new or current policy that's in effect, 
they shouldn't wait or spend any other time to wait before they submit the bill to that. They should do it on the same day if possible. So now let's just say in the example I was talking about, the hospital went ahead and submitted the bill to United Healthcare on the same day that they found out about healthcare as the actual policy for this patient. And then let's just say United Healthcare still went ahead and denied it based on being untimely. If that claim had to go to litigation or arbitration, at least there is an argument to be made on behalf of the hospital that, look, the, de- the delay, we, yeah, we do acknowledge that the claim was submitted not in a timely manner, but at the same time, there's good cost for you, for the insurer or the help on to still process this delayed claim because we actually did not find out that the actual insurer is United Healthcare until that same day that we submitted the bill because we treated the patient, let's just say uh, eight months ago, he gave us a different information. He told us he had this health plan instead. And then we found out that it was not the right one. And so we went ahead and did some research until we finally found out the correct one. And then as soon as we found out who the correct one was, we didn't waste any time and we sent that bill right away. So if the hospital can make a showing that as soon as they realize or as soon as they learned who the correct insurer or health plan was, they went ahead and submitted the bill right away. For the most part, that would be enough to convince an arbitrator or judge that the hospital was acting in good faith, that the delay was in fact not the fault of the hospital and that the health plan or the insured actually benefited because their member or their insured actually received the necessary medical services that they needed. So under those circumstances, a judge or an arbitrator is more likely to be convinced that despite the delay, the health plan or the insurer still should pay for the services rendered to the patient. So that's just, that's one of the more common scenarios that actually are involved whenever you're having to deal with untimely filing or late claim denials. Attorney Thomas, the fifth reason claims are denied is due to improper CPT or ICD-10 codes. The code must correspond to the diagnosis or it could be rejected. What could the providers do to overcome this besides understanding the proper CPT or ICD-10 codes? This is actually a function of having your staff undergo the necessary training because that's why usually coders undergo specialized training. Basically, you don't just assign someone to do the, co- the billing and the coding because this, is, this requires some specialized knowledge of the, as you said, the CPT codes or the ICD-10-9 codes. Or, and then the hospital, or at least the department in charge of coding, has to ensure that they're updated with the most current codes because I believe it's periodically, I'm not sure if it's annually or so, but periodically they update this code. So it used to be the ICD, for example, it used to be the ICD-9 codes, but now it's ICD-10. So if you're a hospital and you're billing and using still ICD-9 codes, now some of those codes may still be the same, but but then many of them actually would be different. You can only imagine why there would be some issues when you're using outdated codes. 
So it's a matter of having uh, good trained coders and good staff assigned in this department and making sure that the code that's being used by your coders are updated. It's not just making sure that they're trained. It's also ensuring that they are using the right system. And that, that system actually also is able to be or is capable of being updated periodically whenever these ICD-9 codes are updated. Other than that, I really couldn't think of any other way of ensuring that denials based on improper codes or issues with codings are minimized. So that's it. The third code. So if you use the wrong codes, it would be different, difficult to dispute a denial. Although what typically happens is that if the coding is incorrect and you receive an EOB denying the claim or bill based on improper coding, that usually can be readily remedied by just reviewing the codes and, and submitting an amended bill with the correct code and provided that you do it in a timely manner. Because if not, then even the appeal for additional payment might be might be denied if you wait too long. So the key is being timely as much as possible. Whenever you receive this denial and there's a chance for you to correct or rectify what's wrong with the bill, then as the hospital or as the, as the billing department of a hospital or for, for a physician group or for a physician individually, you have to be able to do it as soon as possible. Attorney Thomas, the sixth reason for claim denial is out of network. Some plans require providers to be in network for coverage. In instances where the denial is due to out of network, the prevention of this denial is to make sure that providers are in network. But are there legal defenses you can mount for cases like this since the patients had most of the time received medical services? Yeah, basically what this means is insurance companies are contracted with certain hospitals or certain physicians. As a patient, if you're covered under a health plan or insurance or health insurance, you cannot just go to any hospital or, or doctor that you want to go to unless you have a PPO or POS. That's for another conversation, like the nuances or the differences between an HMO and a PPO. But let's just say you have a health plan, you have an HMO. And usually HMOs have a list of a network of providers. So these are providers with which the, the health plan is contracted. So you're probably thinking, why would they only send their patients to these hospitals or these doctors with whom they're contracted? Let me just backtrack a little bit. The contract between the health plan and the provider typically requires the provider to give the health plan discounts on the services that they provide to that health plan's members. For example, the hospital would agree to just charge 50% of their bill charges for a specific type of procedure. Basically, they're discounted rates for their services provided to the members of the health plan. Now, in exchange for that, in exchange for the discounts that the hospital or the doctor had agreed to provide them, the health plan promises the provider or the doctor that they will direct their members to go to them only and not to some other provider. So basically, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. The agreement here is that the doctors at the hospital will give the health plan discounts and the health plan will send them their members to be their patients. So I'll give you patients as long as you give me discounts. That's how it works. 
That's why if you have insurance, if you have an HTML, for example, you need to know when you sign up, they ask you to choose one of the physicians in their list or their network of providers. Usually you're assigned a PCP or a primary care physician. And then you have to go to your primary care physician first before you can, for whatever reason, for any purpose, before you can go ahead and see other providers. You need a referral from your PCPs before you can go see a specialist, for example, or something like that. And then you also have a list of hospitals where you can go. You cannot just go to whatever hospital you want. You have to go to their one of their network hospitals if you want your health plan to pay for the services you rendered. If you, as a patient, decided to go to a hospital, for example, that's not in the network of your health plan, most likely they're going to go ahead and deny payment for the service you receive from that provider. And what's even worse is that the provider or the doctor can actually go ahead and send you the bill instead and, and, and try to collect the payment from you, the patient, directly. Because under those circumstances, the hospital's denial is similar to what we talked about earlier as a lack of eligibility. In this instance, when the out-of-network hospital sends the bill to your health plan, the health plan would then deny it and on the basis that coverage for services provided by your hospital is this patient is not eligible for coverage for your services for the reason that you are not an in-network hospital. And our patient, having been told that he, he or she can only go to a network hospital, still decided to go to an out-network hospital, then we're not going to cover it. There's no coverage there. So the hospital, so they're not denying it for the same reason as they're saying that it's untimely or because there's it's not medically necessary. No, they're not saying that. They're basically saying that sorry, there's no coverage. If you want, go ahead and bill the client, the patient directly. That's what will happen, and that's true for out-of-network hospitals. So now it, it it does beg the question: Why would hospitals accept patients? who they know are insured or covered by a health plan that's not contracted with them. If they know that the patient's health plan is, is something that's out of network, why would a hospital or a provider still admit that patient knowing that their bill or their claim could very well be denied on the basis that they're not, they're not listed in the network or they're not among the preferred providers for that health plan? This happens a lot when a patient actually comes into the hospital through the emergency department or through the ER. Now, I, I did mention it earlier that whenever a patient is suffering from an emergency medical condition, and that's when the patient usually goes through the ER, then that's when the hospital under EMTALA and, or, and other equivalent or similar state laws, they, the hospitals or the provider may not inquire about that patient's insurance or ability to pay for the services until after they actually have stabilized that patient's emergency medical condition. 
For example, let's just say you go to the hospital, go through the ER, you have, you've, you've been shot, let's just say, and you're bleeding. And so as soon as you get rushed into the ER, they're going to have to treat you first and make sure you're stable and, and safe. And only at that point can they ask you, okay, do you have insurance? If you do, can you give us your insurance card so we can bill your insurance? Or if you don't, then maybe you're eligible for Medi-Cal or something like that. But the law prohibits the hospitals from inquiring about a patient's ability to pay at the time that the patient came in through the ER with potentially an emergency medical condition until after they were able to stabilize that patient's emergency medical condition. Now, so let's just say a patient goes into the ER and he does have insurance. So the hospital goes ahead and treat the patient, stabilize the patient. Then once the, pa the patient's stable, the patient gives them their his insurance card and they find out, oh, we're actually not in network with this health plan. So does that mean that the hospital doesn't get paid or does that mean that the health plan is able to turn around and say, you know what, we know you provided emergency medical services to our member, but since you're not in network, we're not going to pay you. No. In emergency cases, the law requires, first of all, somebody who's suffering from an emergency medical condition, let's just say they call the paramedics here in the ambulance and they brought you to the hospital. Under the law, they are required, the emergency medical or the EMS team, they are required to take you to the closest hospital that's able to provide emergency medical services to you. They don't have to take you only to a hospital that's in network with your health plan. They don't have to ask you, well, which hospital do you want to go? Because we want to make sure that we take you to an in-network hospital. No, they have to take you to the closest one. So oftentimes patients end up going to hospitals where their health plans are actually not contracted or, or they're not in network with their health. Under those circumstances, because the services had to be provided under emergency circumstances, the law requires the health plan to pay for those emergency medical services. That's one way for hospitals or providers to be able to get paid, even though they are out of network providers. It's whenever they provided emergency medical services under the law, they have to be paid regardless of their network status with the health plan. So let's just say even if they're out of network with your with the patient's uh, hospital because they provided emergency medical conditions, under the law, they will be paid for those emergency medical services. Another way for them to be able to get reimbursed, even though they're an out-of-network provider, is if they went ahead and called the insurer or the health plan and obtained authorization to provide services to their member. So even though the hospital or the provider is out of network, if they were authorized by the insurer or the health plan to go ahead and, and admit the patient, then by virtue of that authorization, they have to be paid for whatever medical services they provide to that patient. So yeah, that's one way, another way of being able to receive reimbursement, even as an out-of-network provider. Attorney Thomas, the seventh reasons for denial of reimbursement are services not covered. Sometimes the patient's coverage can be terminated or the maximum benefit has not been met and the plan does not cover the use. What are the strategies to help hospital get reimbursement if claims were denied based on services not covered? You see this a lot when there are there is a contract between the provider and the health plan or the or the insurance and 
certain contracts would actually have a section where they list excluded services. If as a hospital, you provided those excluded services to the patient, and that service happens to be one of those services specifically listed in the contract as excluded, it would be very difficult to convince an arbitrator or judge that service should nonetheless be paid because if the contract is clear and unequivocal in in indicating that these type of service will not be paid and then the hospital still went ahead and provided the service, then you're a little bit out of luck in that kind of scenario as the provider. Unless before they provided the service, they called the insurer and the or the health plan and they requested authorization for that specific service. Sometimes they may ask, okay, this service is excluded in our contract, so this will not be paid if you provide service. What sometimes happens is then the hospital, usually through the actual treating physician, they will send a letter to the health plan explaining why this patient requires this type of service or this procedure, or this is really medically necessary in order to stabilize the patient, something like that. Sometimes when that happens, upon receipt of that explanation, uh, the health plan or the insurance will go ahead and authorize that patient, the service to be provided to the patient. So once they authorize it, going back to what I was talking about earlier, once they authorize a, a service, then they'll have to pay for it, regardless of for whatever reason that they want to deny payment later. Once they authorize, it would be really difficult, if not impossible for them to deny payment later on. Probably the only time that a health plan or insurer can avoid having to pay for a service or a procedure that they have authorized, if, if they can prove that the service of the or the procedure actually were not performed at all. If the medical records is clear that the services that they're billing for was not performed or actually was not done, even though it was authorized, yeah, then yeah, of course, then they don't have to pay for it. But if it wasn't actually done and they had authorized it, then they have to pay for it. So in this type of a scenario where the actual specific service or procedure is specifically indicated under the contract as not covered, then the only way it could be paid, it would be paid by the insurance company if, if you as a hospital provided is if you are able to obtain authorization prior to actually providing the service. So once they authorize it, even though it's listed as excluded in the contract, since they authorize it, then you can go ahead and render the services and get paid for it. Attorney Thomas, needing prior authorization is the eighth reason the insurance company used to deny claims. Pre-authorization is required for many medical services. If the services are provided without prior approval, the insurance will reject the claims. Please tell us more about unauthorized claims and what are the strategies you use to assist hospital to obtain reimbursement. Yeah, usually when there's a contract between an insurer and a provider or a health plan and a provider, the contract requires that the provider first obtain authorization or pre-authorization before they render the service. And then it also provides there that if the hospital fails to obtain pre-authorization, then the health plan or the insurer can deny payment for that service. Although increasingly now, a lot of the, these contracts would not necessarily provide that payment 
payment will be denied or lack of authorization. What a lot of contracts between insurers and, and providers now require is that if the hospital or the provider was not able to obtain prior authorization before ending their services, before the insurer or the health plan can deny payment for that, the hospital or the provider will be given the opportunity to prove that the service or the procedure performed was medically necessary. If they are able to prove that the service provided or the procedure performed was medically necessary, even though there's no prior authorization obtained before they rendered it, then the insurer or the health plan would still have to reimburse the hospital for that. The rationale for that is that, yes, we know that we did not, from the hospital's vantage point, we know that we for some reason, did not obtain prior authorization. But by virtue of the fact that this service or procedure is medically necessary, in other words, your insured or your member requires to undergo this procedure or receive this service, otherwise, like he might die or his medical condition might get worse or something like that, then because it's a medically necessary service or Ensure there is no doubt that had we asked for prior authorization, you wouldn't, the insurer or the helpline wouldn't have any choice but to go ahead and authorize it because it's medically necessary. That's the basically what it means that, yeah, I know I didn't ask you first. Even if I had asked you, I know you would have said yes anyway because of this, the fact that it is a medically necessary procedure and we can prove it. So that is the remedy to denials based on lack of authorization. If you can prove that the service provided was medically necessary, then for the most part, you can get around that denial uh, based on lack of authorization. Also, the other thing, and not as commonly known, is there's this notice prejudice rule. And this is more commonly used only once the claim reaches the point of litigation. So what does notice prejudice rule mean? This means that an insurer or a health insurance cannot deny payment for the hospital based on the hospital's failure to meet certain conditions required by the contract unless the insurance can prove that it had suffered actual prejudice as a result of the hospital's failure to comply with the conditions. So in this type of scenario, unless the health insurance can prove that the hospital's failure to obtain prior authorization had actually cost them, actually prejudiced them or cost them harm, then they cannot just deny payment solely based on a technicality because they didn't comply with the contract that requires prior authorization. So now they actually are required to show that they were actually harmed by the fact that the hospital did not comply with that condition. Attorney Thomas, the ninth reason is documentations. When services are rendered and they were not documented in a chart, at the end of the day, the insurance companies will comb through the medical records to look for excuses not to pay. For example, when the provider is not documenting the clinical analysis of why the patient required certain treatments and why the patient must continue to be in the hospital or why the patients needed the surgery or why the treatments were delayed. What were your experiences in assisting hospital to recover in instances like this? Yeah, that's a good question. And let me just begin by saying that 
for the most part, your the strength of your case on behalf of your client, which is the hospital or the provider, is just as strong as how well documented or how well maintained the medical records are. So let's just say that you have a good case. You as a provider provided medically necessary services or procedure to a patient. And this patient is very sick. This patient is suffering from numerous comorbidities. So he or she required additional treatment than what initially was expected. But all these services are medically necessary. So you went ahead and provided to them. However, you failed to document what other comorbidities this patient have, or you fail to document the reasons why as the provider or as the treating physician, you ordered certain types of, of diagnostic procedures or certain types of services. For example, you're the doctor, you're treating this patient, you want to rule out certain conditions because this patient has certain comorbidities and you want to make sure that before you discharge this patient, that this patient is not just stable based on the initial chief complaint that patient came into the hospital for. You want to make sure that patient is also stable in terms of the other conditions or comorbidities that patient may have. Uh, and you don't know this as a, as a long-time practicing nurse and as a doctor. The problem sometimes is that even though the services provider were in fact medically necessary and therefore justifiable, for some reason, the providers don't do a good job of documenting them. Or even if they document those, they do it poorly. Later on, Let's just say that the payment for the services were denied and the dispute actually reaches litigation and or arbitration. It would be very difficult for the hospital or the provider to prove that this patient really required additional treatment or the treat whatever treatment you provided them. It would be difficult to prove that they're medically necessary if your documentation is poor or if you don't have the necessary medical records to back up what your claims are or your contentions are. Even if you have the treating physician there to provide testimony, that would be very difficult, first of all, because we all know that these doctors see so many patients in a day or within a given time. And, and a lot of times by the time this a claim or a case reaches litigation, the services were rendered like a year or so or a year or two prior to that. For the treating physician to come in and give oral testimony as to what he recalls the patient needed at the time that the services were provided without the support of proper documentation, that would be difficult, if not impossible. And even if he claims that he does remember it, how is he going to prove it when he doesn't have the proper documentation? So documentation or, or medical records really make a big difference whenever you have to dispute a denial or an underpayment by health plan or insurance company. So I couldn't stress enough how important proper documentation is. And I understand sometimes our doctors or nurses are just, they'd rather just focus on providing the actual services, which I totally understand that's what they're trained for. That's what they know, the reason they're there to make sure that the patients are taken care of and treated correctly. But Increasingly, now that the healthcare has become a heavily regulated industry, and now with a lot of different types of health plans or managed care being more prevalent now, and claims 
are being denied on the basis of missing information here or lacking uh, justification for a certain procedure. In this type of industry where payment can be denied just for something that's like a missing page or a missing explanation for a certain type of procedure, it's very important to make sure that everything that the patient receives is documented. I think hospitals in general will and will have to work with their physicians and nurses in order to ensure that proper documentation is, is maintained for the patient in order to avoid these scenarios where claims or payments are being denied primarily because there's no good documentation. And I think there's also a trend among hospitals and providers that they're trying to make their documentation for the doctors as easy as possible. So they're resorting to like electronic medical records or basically everything is computerized now. So the doctors, when they're providing services to a patient or treating a patient, there's actually like a computer in the patient's room when they can go ahead and log in and they just basically go ahead and enter it right there and then what they provided to the patient. So it's almost, it's basically real time. Whatever they type in there, it goes directly to the patient's medical records. So rather than back then, they had these papers, so they had to write it down and somebody had to transcribe it and then add it later to the medical records. So I think increasingly now, hospitals realize the importance of proper documentation. So they're moving towards more efficient, accurate, and better ways of ensuring the documentation is properly maintained. Attorney Thomas, the 10th reason, sometimes mm-hmm. the patient's conditions appear to be stable after a certain hospital length of stay. The insurance company erroneously states the patient should have been discharged earlier. How do you overcome this denial? Do you use experts as part of your legal defense? Yes, definitely. But let me backtrack a little bit. A lot of times, some health plans or insurance would deny claims on the basis that, well, this patient stayed here in the hospital too long. This patient was already stable by the fifth day, but he stayed there for eight days. So we are not paying for the last three days. We're only paying for the five days. That's the typical denial a hospital would receive. Or sometimes it would be in the context of an inpatient versus outpatient denial. So basically the insurance or the health plan would say that this patient should not have been admitted in the first place. The condition that this patient had was such that he he or she could have been treated on an outpatient basis. So basically what they're saying is that this patient didn't have to stay in the hospital. Like he could have just gone home that same day after treatment. Now, definitely when you are as a provider having to face this type of denial, and then once you've reached the litigation point, then you definitely will need expert testimony in order to prove that the additional days that the patient stayed at the hospital were medically necessary because you need somebody with a clinical background to testify, to provide testimony why those additional days are justified. And somebody who can actually explain based on the medical records, what conditions this patient had that required or justified those additional days. So yes, to answer your question for these type of claims, just any medically, any claims denied based on lack of medical necessity, you certainly will need expert testimony. Now it could be a retained expert or a hired gun expert, or it could be a non-retained expert in the form of uh, your actual treating physicians. And this has been increasingly being done by providers or hospitals. They actually have actual doctor who provided the treatment for that patient to testify at the hearing regarding the care and service, that care and treatment that 
he or she provided to the patient. Or, or sometimes they just go ahead and hire one of these experts and who, who, who will review all the medical records and testify that, well, based on medical records, those additional days were necessary. Of course, going back to, to number nine, assuming that there's proper documentation. There are times when actually, based on my experience, some hospitals for some reason just admit patients, even though the patients are not, are not it's not medically necessary for that patient to be uh, admitted as inpatient. And back in the days, and I imagine this as being a, a while ago, when somebody came in and uh, a patient came in and the doctor feels like, but just to be on the safe side, I'm going to have you stay at the hospital one day for one night and then I'll just, we'll discharge you. Increasingly now, one day inpatient stays are being scrutinized by commercial health plans or even the government with Medicare, Medi-Cal. Because a lot of times those patients who stay only one night actually don't require admission at all. I think it's a matter of the hospital being able to, to train or work with their physicians in order to avoid these type of unnecessary admissions. Attorney Thomas, we have a bonus reason, number 11th. Denial of claims for ER visits as not part of emergency services. That is in instances where the insurance company claimed that these medical services that were provided in the emergency room should have, could have been seen by their primary care physicians doing regular office hours. How can you overcome this type of denial? Yeah. Just a clarification. So when a patient comes into the ER and complains about a certain medical condition, under the law, the hospital is required to do a triage of that patient. What that means is that the hospital or the provider, the doctors, must first examine the patient to determine whether or not that patient has an emergency medical condition. If that patient does have emergency medical condition, then they need to stabilize that patient first. That's the first thing they need. They need to stabilize them whatever medical emergency medical condition that patient has. Once that patient is stabilized, now, as I said earlier, they can go ahead and ask that patient what his or her insurance is or, or what his or her health plan is or how he or she is going to pay for the service. So what happens typically is that the service is provided by the hospital up until the point that they've stabilized the patient. That's called as emergency medical services. Emergency medical services is really difficult for health plans and insurance companies to deny because how can you deny payment for the hospital's effort to triage the patient when at that point, there's really no indication yet either way, whether or not the condition was of an emergent nature. At that point, your presumption would always have to be that, yes, this is an emergency medical condition. We're going to treat this as an emergency medical condition. We're going to go ahead and treat this patient until we're sure that the patient is stable. Once the patient is stable and declared stable, then that's the point where now the hospital will have to call or make contact with the insurance company or the health plan to obtain authorization from that health plan or, or, or insurance company to provide further services to that patient or what we call post-stabilization services. For the most part, when a patient comes into the ER and then receives emergency medical condition and then thereafter receives further treatment for post-stabilization services, usually that's the portion of the services that 
are typically denied by health funds or insurance companies, the post-stabilization services. As I said earlier, the, emer- the actual emergency medical services are difficult, if not impossible, to deny. They are required under the law to pay for it, even if the hospital or provider is not is out of network. But once the patient is declared as stable, that's when the duty of the hospital to get authorization from the insurance or the health plan arises. And so at that point, if the hospital fails to call the insurance company or the health plan and obtain authorization from them, if they went ahead and provide post-stabilization services without prior proper authorization, then payment for those services might be denied and, and the health insurance company might be correct in doing so. So unless, of course, under the health and safety code, and I believe also under the insurance code, the in, the provider made the effort to call the health insurance company to obtain authorization to provide further treatment for the patient. And for some reason, the insurance or the health plan fails to go, fails to respond to the hospital to either authorize them to go ahead and didn't provide the post-stabilization services. So let me backtrack a little bit. When, when the hospital calls an insurance company or a health plan to, to inform them that, look, we admit we have one of your members, he came in through the ER and he needs further treatment. So are you going to authorize us to provide him treatment? Or if you're not going to authorize us, are you going to make arrangement to transfer that patient to an in-network hospital? Once that hospital made that call, the health plan or the insurance company must respond to them in a timely manner. What's a timely manner? Under the, the law, it's 30 minutes. So they have to get back to the hospital within 30 minutes and let the hospital know what they intend to do. Are they, do they, are they going to authorize them to provide services or are they going to have the patient transferred to another hospital? If they fail to respond to the hospital within the reasonable time or within 30 minutes, then of course you cannot expect the hospital to hold off from providing medically necessary treatment to that patient because that patient might be put in peril or you don't want to jeopardize that patient's medical condition by waiting. So now the hospital will have to go ahead and provide the medically necessary post-stabilization service for that patient. And that would be deemed as authorized because the health plan or the insurance didn't respond to the hospital's request in a timely manner, all those services will be deemed authorized and will be will have to be reimbursed or paid for by the health plan and the insurance. Attorney Thomas, how about instances where the emergency room physicians treat patients for conditions that were clearly not under emergency circumstances, such as ear infection, and did not attempt to obtain prior authorization, or and other instances where the emergency room physicians clearly document that patients just didn't have time to go see their primary care physician. They're too busy working, for instances. What are your experiences with those type of claims? My experience in those type of denials is that, again, it would depend on whether or not those services would fall under the emergency services or post-stabilization services. But for example, you're talking about an ear infection that's not really emergent. Insurance company might find that as soon as the patient described or reported exactly what he or she was feeling, at that point, it should have been determined already that the the condition was not uh, emergency. So there's no emergency medical condition. I think in that type of circumstances, the most likely the insurance or the 
health plan might deny payment for the provider or the doctor. And as you know, ER visits actually, they have a little bit higher rate just because they're emergency visits compared to, let's say, urgent care visits or office visits. So under that scenario that you just described, I can see how uh, an insurer or a health plan might deny payment for that. Now, and for the most part, if that's the case, Sometimes I would just advise my client to look, your doctor, for some reason, admitted this patient or provided services to this patient, even though there's no emergency medical condition at that time. So the denial is, it's hard to argue uh, against that denial because there's no emergency medical condition to be treated at that time. What I would do though, what I would advise my client sometimes, so it, even though it may seem like this is something that like an, an uphill battle that would be difficult to win if we had to go to litigation or arbitration. What I would do sometimes is advise my client to see and try to negotiate with the insurer or health plan saying that, okay, we acknowledge that the services provided were not emergent, but you still cannot change the fact that we still provided treatment to the patient. The patient still received medically necessary treatment, whether or not it was on an emergency basis, correct? So what I advise my client under those circumstances sometimes is to negotiate with the insurer and agree to maybe accept payment at a lower level of care rather than an ER visit, maybe agree to a payment based on whatever office visit or outpatient rate you might have. So basically, you still get paid for rendering the services, and then the insurer and the or the health plan is also, they can understand, like, yeah, okay, that's fine. As long as we don't have to pay the emergency rates, because it wasn't really an emergency case. So that's what I would usually do in those circumstances. Attorney Thomas, what are other excuses that insurance companies use to deny claims? Other than the ones that we have already discussed here, one of the more common ones that I see is uh, when they deny a procedure or any medical supplies as being experimental or investigational. So for example, I had, I had this one case before where my patient had this, underwent some kind of a procedure, which actually was uh, fairly new. The insurer and the health plan denied it as experimental. But the way to, con again, this is similar to a medical denial-based medical necessity. The way to dispute this type of denial is by use of expert witness testimony based on scientific data and other clinical information to support the use of that procedure on that patient. Oftentimes, denials are based on standard procedures adopted by the health plan and insurance in processing the claims or bills. So for example, yes, the let's just say the medical procedure is fairly new. This insurance company has adopted a policy that whenever they see this type of procedure being performed, they are going to go ahead and automatically deny it because as experimental investigation. But they haven't really updated their system. And as of the recent years, it's been proven that this procedure is actually effective and have been adopted by many medical practitioners and it has become more common by use of that information. You can prove that what 
the insurance company is referring to as an experimental procedure is actually not quite experimental anymore. And it's become more mainstream and it's being actually has shown a pretty high success rate and therefore is being used by many practitioners. So if you can back up your case with that kind of information, then that's how you can overturn a denial based on experimental or, or an investigational. Or another way is that if you can prove that the FDA had actually certified or issued the license for that for a certain type of supply or medical supply or, or product, then and then also if you can show that the the, the medical supply was actually used based on an, based on what it's actually intended for and not off-label use. So that's another way to dispute these denials based on being experimental or investigation. Our final phase, Attorney Thomas, is the appeal process. After the claim has been denied and the hospital attempts to work with the insurance company has been exhausted, it goes to the appeal process through the formal legal system. Could you please explain the appeal process when it reached to your law office and explain the typical legal defense you mount for these type of denials? Sure. Normally when insurance companies and or health plans enter into contract with a doctor or hospital or any provider, their contracts typically would incorporate an appeal process whenever there's a dispute regarding processing of claims or payment of claims. So typically the one example is that the provider or the doctor may submit an appeal to the health plan or the insurance, and they call it usually as an informal resolution. So they would try to submit a request to informally resolve these disputes, and basically that's the appeal process. And typically they have a time limit for those appeals to be submitted within. So for example, the common limitations that an appeal must be submitted within 60 or 120 days after a claim is denied. So in order for the insurance or the health plan to process your appeal for additional payment or for any payment, it has to be submitted within that prescribed time frame. If you, as the hospital, fail to submit your appeal within that time frame, then the insurance or the health plan can legitimately deny your claim because you did not comply with the requirements of the contract. The contract requires that if you wish to dispute a payment or a non-payment of a claim, you have to do so within a certain time. And if you fail to do that, then your claim could be denied. Hospitals or providers have to be very mindful of what the specific appeal process is for every health plan or insurance company or that they're working with each different each one may have a different type like of appeal process like some of them only requires uh one appeal process some of them or or one level or some of them are required two levels of appeals and then once you've exhausted the appeal process then that is when you can go ahead as a provider and seek the help of, of maybe of legal counsel and maybe have to bring or take these claims to litigation to pursue further payment from the insurance company. Now, here's one thing that I want to discuss finally is that healthcare providers or doctors have to be mindful that there is a statute of limitations to hospital claims or payment by health plans or insurance company. If they have a written contract between them and the health plan, then the statute of limitations is four years. 
if there's no contract, let's just say you provided, you as a provider created a, a patient who has an out-of-network health plan. There's no written contract. The statute of limitations would be two years. So what that means is that if there's no contract, you, you have, if you're going to go ahead and file a lawsuit against the insurance or the health plan, you must do so within two years. If you have a written contract, then you must do so within four years. Now, the question now is, when does that statute of limitations period start running? So when does the two years, when do you start counting the two years from? When you start counting the four years from previously, the prevailing thought was that as long as you can keep submitting an appeal to the health plan or the insurance company, then your and then they review your appeal, then the statute of limitations period does not commence until after their final denial. So by virtue of that, you as the provider can potentially keep extending or delaying the running of the statute of limitations by just submitting an appeal. But actually, recently in 2006, there's this case that came out of the California Appeals Court saying that unless you have a contract that specifically requires, no, is key. The contract must require the appeal process. Unless you have a contract requiring an appeal process to be completed, the statute of limitations starts running at the time that the hospital or the provider received the EOB denying payment or partial payment. So what does that mean? If you have a contract that requires you to submit an appeal, then if it's a requirement, you have to abide by it because the contract calls for it. So you have to appeal. And only after that appeal is denied will the statute of limitations start running. Now, if you don't have a contract that requires, that specifically requires an appeal, does that mean that you as the provider can no longer appeal? No, of course, yes, you can. You can still go ahead and submit an appeal. This would be something that would be called a voluntary appeal because there's no contract requiring the appeal to be made. Yet you are volunteering to submit an appeal in the hopes of being able to resolve this dispute with the, with the insurance companies. And a lot of times they would go ahead and, and accept the appeal request and then process it. And then the, the difference is that if you don't have a contract that requires an appeal, even if you do so voluntarily, the will still run from the time of the EOB. So the appeal will not delay the running of the, or the beginning of the statute of limitations to run. Unlike when you have a, a mandatory appeal process, then that would serve to delay the statute of limitations from running. But if there is no mandatory appeals process and you just, as the provider, just voluntarily submitted the appeal, that is not going to delay the statute of limitations. The statute of limitations will start running at the time the, the EOB was issued showing that it was payment was denied or, or or denied in part. Attorney Thomas, is there anything else we should know about claim reimbursement and claim denial? I think we've tried we covered much of them already. There's still a lot to know. Just 
especially here in California, there are two separate systems. There's the health plan and the health insurance company. There's the HMOs, PPOs, and there's the health and safety code for the HMOs. And then there's the insurance code for the PPO. For our purposes tonight, with regards to the denial, those are the most common ones. And I try to touch on the most common ways or most effective ways I could think of in order for the providers to avoid the pitfalls of those denials and be able to receive the reimbursement that, that they deserve for the services they render to the patients. Great. Thank you. Attorney Thomas, do you have any contact information that you would like to provide for anybody who would like to contact you for specific information or to oh, yeah. obtain Absolutely. Uh, your like, services? Yeah. Yes, definitely. They can reach me on my email at Oliver, O-L-I-V-E-R dot E-S-Q 99 at gmail.com. And I'd be more than glad to help anybody who or has to respond to anybody who may have questions with regards to these type of issues. Great. Thank you, Attorney Thomas, for sharing with us the reasons the insurance company used to deny medical reimbursement claims, the strategies to prevent denials, and thank you for explaining the appeal process to us. We would like to thank you for, for all the information and for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you, too, for having me. Thank you. If you need to ask Attorney Thomas specific questions, please contact him via his email at oliver.esq99 at gmail.com. That is O-L-I-V-E-R period E-S-Q 99 at gmail.com. This podcast is for general information only and is not intent to be medical or legal advice. It is not an endorsement of any product or services or is a substitute for adequate training, research, compliance, established protocols, federal, state, or local rules. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by the guest speakers are their personal opinions and not the opinions or statements of any other organization, agency, employer, or company. Please join us on this unique journey and be part of the movement that will empower healthcare consumers and providers to advocate for patients and for themselves because your voices matter. Please subscribe, follow, and join us for a weekly episode. For more information, please visit www.worldofnp.com. Thank you for your time and thank you for listening. See you in the next episode.